Welcome to another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Lynn Elias, film critic, near and far. You can find me print online, and every Monday you can find me at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, right here on Adrenaline Radio. And if by some chance you missed part of the show today, you want to catch up with us, we're archived on the Adrenaline site uh, by tonight. We are on iTunes uh, within 24 hours. And then this week, we are back to shooting video. My eye is no longer ugly and disgusting. For those of you that tuned in last week, we had a, a cat claw catastrophe uh, with one of my cats in my eyeball. So uh, we're back uh, full force this week. And when you watch the video of this week's show later, you're going to notice it's just swimmingly beautiful because this Friday, Finding Dory hits theaters. And we are decked out in our finest fi- with our finest Finding Dory merchandise here today. I want to thank the folks at Disney for some of it. And Disney can thank me for what I purchased because I had to have. Um, but welcome. Welcome. Uh, today is a great show. Today is one of my favorite shows of the year. Each year it is um, because we have the legend of stage and screen, Carol Cook is with us today again uh, it's always a delight to have Carol with us and she's back to talk about this year's stage LA the Southland theater artist goodwill event that is happening this Sunday at the Wallace in Beverly Hills uh, takes on a uh, new significant meaning this year uh, it is the longest it, it is the oldest fundraiser supporting HIV AIDS uh, proceeds of this benefit AIDS project Los Angeles but given what just transpired uh, for the LGBT community in Orlando yesterday, um, and as well as the Tony Awards last night, uh, this is a very special show to have Carol on today. So I can't wait for her. She'll be coming up shortly. And then, shortly after the half, halfway point, Jody McVie Schultz is with us talking about his film, Echo Lake. I had the pleasure of meeting Jody, my fellow Philadelphian. Last year, Dances with Films. Uh, Gravitas Ventures. You've heard me mention Gravitas many times uh, over the past year and a half. Gravitas picked up distribution rights to Echo Lake, and tomorrow uh, everybody can enjoy Echo Lake on VOD. So Jody's going to be with us to talk about that. But before we get to that, Brian is very, is very upset. He did not get to give us the Star Wars countdown last week. So I'm going to let Brian be the first thing out of the box today with his Star Wars countdown. We hyped it up so much last week and didn't do it. I felt like we disappointed some people. Well, we have to make it up. Oh, I opened up the wrong counter here. Oh, good heavens. Give me, I have another one that's counting down football. No, we don't need a football countdown. Okay, so episode eight, as of the last time I gave you the countdown, we are now 549 days 12 hours, 56 minutes, and after I'm done speaking, five seconds to go. Very cool. But. What about Rogue One? I can't wait that long. So Rogue One feels a little bit closer. We're at 185 days, 12 hours, and 55 minutes to go. You know, that's just a few days over six months. Yeah. No, it's coming December. December. So, we're already looking at December at this point. We're so, halfway done with the year. Yes, I know. Can you believe it? We're halfway done with the year? I I count my years now as Star Wars comes out. So the 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 new year the new year would be when uh, episode 7 came out. So my new year is going to be when Rogue One comes out and then oh the next new year is going to be when episode 8 comes out. Oh, and out. here I thought your year ran by the behind the lens clock. Well, uh, when did Yeah, actually it does too. Monday's <sighs> the start of the week. Well, that I I run my weeks by behind the lens. Oh. I run I... my year by Star Wars. <laughs> Well, this week, you can run your clock by something else because we're going to talk a little bit about Finding Dory. Uh, I had the pleasure of uh, 
covering uh, Finding Dory at the press junket last week. Of course, that was after wrapping up L.A. Film Festival, uh, which already there are buys of films uh, to come out of L.A. Film Festival. I want to give a huge shout-out and, and congratulations to Barbara Crampton, executive producer, uh, and the whole team from Beyond the Gates, which walked away with the jury prize for the Nightfall selection. Uh, those of you that uh, were listening uh, last week or who have read uh, the, my must-see, annual Must See Festival Films column know that was one of my top picks of the festival. Beyond the Gates uh, picked up the award uh, for night, in the Nightfall category. Also, I couldn't be more thrilled. Remy Abergenois, Bloodstripe one in the in the US fiction category an amazing amazing film and i can't wait to see how quickly a distributor snatches that film up because it is a film that every american needs to see and while it deals with ptsd of a returning female marine in these troubled times and in light of the events that have just happened post traumatic stress happens to everybody it can happen to Every American just watching on the news what transpired in Orlando or what transpired right here in Southern California in Santa Monica, um, the victims, their families. So this Bloodstripe is a film that will resonate not just for people uh, from a military uh, standpoint, but from anybody who is affected by stress, by trauma of these incidents that are all too frequent in our country. But let, let's move on to some happier, happier tidings here and talk about Finding Dory. We've all been waiting for Finding Dory. You know, as Andrew Stanton said, uh, you know, in Finding Nemo, Dory was the breakout star. And, this, and with Finding Dory, we have another breakout star. It is Hank, the octopus, who is not really an octopus anymore. He's a septopus. But uh, he is an absolute charmer. But this go-round, we've got Dory, with her short-term memory loss, trying to find her parents. She realizes she has a family somewhere. She wants to find her parents. I sat down for an exclusive one-on-one with one of the producers of the film, Lindsay Collins. And we talked about all things Dory, starting with, where did this story come from? Well, I think it started from... As, as I'm sure you've heard, basically just a very kind of specific concern that Andrew has, which is all kind of all of his stories start. They start very small, right. which is like, I'm like a char- usually they're character-based. I'm worried about something or I have a personal experience. It's very small, but mm-hmm. I think it's kind of universal. And so that's where it started. Um, so it didn't start off as like, what's going to be the, the larger story? It was more about like, I'm worried Dory's going to forget again and that she doesn't feel confident in herself that she can do this. So it started there. And then then kind of from there, it became about, okay, well, it feels like we need to think about where is she from? Who are her parents? How did this happen? And then knowing all of that, where she is today, how do we get her to a place where she feels good about herself mm-hmm. and confident about herself? And it's something that I think it's why audiences did resonate with Dory so much, yeah. was her ability to kind of be that person for everybody else. Like the one who was like, you can do, we can do this. Here we go. You know, like she was always yeah. optimistic and let's not give up and here we go and doing crazy stuff. But it kind of, she didn't feel that way about herself. She apologized for herself. I'm sorry I suffered from short, I mean, her Every opening summer. sentence is, yeah. I'm sorry I suffered from short-term memory loss. And if you notice at the end of the movie after her mom, the last time she apologizes is right before her mom looks at her and says, don't you dare apologize. Yeah. And, and for us, that was like the moment. Like, we needed her to have that moment. It didn't feel like she she was going to be okay. So that's how it started. So Mm -hmm. all the rest of it comes from a place of, like, what's going to get us to that moment? And who delivers that moment? How does she, like, Mm -hmm. from a character place, who needs to deliver that moment to her? Mm -hmm. Um, And then then the characters from there, I mean, we get inspired by nature. We watch videos and, you know, we go to aquariums. And, I mean, beluga whales and, you know octopus are like the coolest things you almost yeah. have to do nothing to them i mean because they're so cool and they, they just morph themselves yeah and they have so much they're so anthrop- smart they're so anthropomorphic yeah to begin with. i know 
Like, and and we were we'd watch videos of octopus and be like, that can't possibly be true. I mean, they undo jars, and I mean, they are incredibly intelligent. So we loved the fact that we didn't have to stretch <laughs> the truth all that much. I mean, like literally, these these like animals can do these things. So. And then the fact that we could make him kind of this curmudgeonly, kind of just wants to be alone, a loner, mm-hmm. and that that is so the antithesis of what Dory wants. Well, and, but then you have, you incorporate in there, which is what makes the octopus so perfect, that an octopus has three hearts. And that was one that was actually, that's funny, that was one that we had for a long time, and we were trying to figure out a natural way of getting it in there, because we loved that, yeah. that the octopus really does have three hearts, and for Dory to call that out on him, mm-hmm. and we were like, how do we, because we didn't want it to be all teaching, like, you yeah. know, like she's instructing him, but then we also were like, how cool would it be as if it's something that was always outside of her exhibit mm-hmm. as a little girl, so it makes sense, Yeah, like, it, that's why she speaks whale, and that's why she can read, and that's why she knows echolocation, and that's why she knows that octopus have three hearts, so we kind of love the piecing together mm-hmm. of the backstory and what it allowed us to kind of explain from the first film. And we'll be back with Lindsay Collins shortly, but right now, talking about heart, I have the, the lady with the biggest heart in the world on the phone right now. Hello, Carol Cook. Hi, Debbie Lynn. How are you, darling? I am so fine. I am so thrilled that you wanted to, that you were willing to come and join me again this year. Well, I'm thrilled. I said, Debbie Lynn's calling. I'm doing the stage benefits, so I know it's a year since we talked. <laughs> <laughs> Brian said he had missed me. Well, he was, uh, I, he was very excited when he found out you were, you were doing the show again this year. Uh, yes, honey. I'm like a bad penny. I always show up. Oh. Uh, we've done it. This is our 32nd year, and I've done it. This will be... My 30th year. Well, because you did take, you you slacked there and you took some time off. And I'm having a little trouble hearing you, Debbie. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Well, Brian's going to, Brian's, he heard you, so he's going to work on the sound so that you can hear me better. All right. That, that, tell him I'll just yell. Oh, well, <laughs> he can hear you. He's listening to <laughs> I have that kind of voice, sweetheart. I know. So it's do like, I. Yeah, I'm a Broadway baby. But we're doing, um, well, I'm sure you know, Stephen Sondheim this year. And this is Sondheim number five. Number five. <laughs> well, you know, he, Stephen has been good to us. I mean, we uh, really, we get a big, big audience when we do uh, Stephen Sondheim. As well you should. And I'll tell you, uh, Debbie, do we call you Debbie or Debbie Lynn? You can call me whatever you want. <laughs> hey, you will get my attention. Well, hey, you works. Hey, you works too. <laughs> well, uh, see, I'm from the South, honey, so we always use both names. And that my mother was, as you know, my mother was from Columbus, Georgia, and my mother would would when she wanted my attention, she'd always say Debbie Lynn. Yes, that's exactly right. And my real name is Mildred Frances Cook. Now, you may wonder why I changed it, <laughs> but, but I remember they'd go, Mildred Francis, you know, <laughs> and they were Southern Baptists. So my grandmother, uh, Mildred Francis, just leave it where Jesus flung it. <laughs> now, I didn't know what the hell that meant, but I thought, well, if Jesus... If it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. <laughs> oh, and it's funny. My mother grew up Southern Baptist as well. Oh, my grandma, uh, well, she's dead now. But I used to say my grandmother thought I was out here in California doing missionary work. <laughs> and I said, if I have a healing, let me know. <laughs> but I'm thrilled this time because, um, well, I'm singing I'm Still Here from Follies. Oh, my. And I said, who better to sing it, my darling? You have to get a lot of years on you to sing that song. Oh, my goodness. That is a perfect song for you. Isn't that good? Oh, my God. And I, I mean, the opening line, good times and bum times, I've seen them all, and my dear, I'm still here. Well, and you know what What I love? This year takes on, and you calling today of all days, takes on even greater importance. You know, last night was the 70th anniversary of the Tonys. And, yes, it was, and wasn't it wonderful? It was. At, James Corden just blew my mind. I mean, 
I said after that opening <sighs> number, I said, where are we going from here? You know. That I, was. That was stunning, I thought. Oh, my God. It was flawless. I've never seen, you know, Neil Patrick Harris had set the bar high in the past. Yes, he has. But now James just, he knocked it out of the theater. Yes, he did. He's a real entertainer. He's P.T. Barnum, you know. I th- uh, that's a good description for him. And he's um, hes so joyful, you know. thats And that's what it's about. And especially last night. And I thought that they handled the Orlando um, tragedy. I thought they... They referred to it the right amount of time, the mm-hmm. right amount of seriousness, I mean, that it brought to, and yet joy came through. And I love what Franklin Jello said when he said, I have before me one of the most giving audiences in the world, and Orlando, we're with you. And I was just going to say, that was, for me, the same, the same thing. It was so touching to hear Frank talk. Oh, yes. And I, well, I thought it was a stunning show, and, of course, a very few surprises, but uh, because Hamilton. <laughs> have you seen it? I have not. I have not either, Debbie Lynn. So. Well, maybe when we get the, ro- the touring company out here, you and I can go see it. Yeah, we, as a unit, and we'll bring my husband, Tom, we'll bring and Tom. we'll bring Brian with us. We'll br- that's it. Brian's happy. <laughs> he's, he's in the booth. He's nodding his head. He's very happy. He'll go. No, tell Brian. He can pay for the tickets, too, by the way. Well, you know what's so great about Brian is he's in his 20s. He's young, but he just loves classic film. He appreciates theater. He's, you know, he's not a typical 23-year-old. As we've talked about before, he does not lack curiosity. Oh, my God. He's 23. Oh, Oh, four. Four. He's an embryo. My God. Get over it, Brian. (laughs) <laughs> I love it. I love it. But you know what? And that's interesting because, you know, Turner Classic, which does all the old movies, which I know you know, and brought uh, um, Bob Osborne, who's who's the leader of the pack. Mm-hmm. It was our best man at our wedding when Tom and I got married. And um, uh, he's in charge of all that. And Lucille Ball was my matron of honor. Uh, Debbie Lynn, let me tell you, it is a mistake to have Lucille Ball for your matron of honor. (laughs) People tended not to look at the bride. (laughs) They said, how did Carol look? And everybody went, who cares? Lucille Ball was matron. Oh, my God. But but we are back to our show. We're really thrilled, and we're going to do it at... At the Wallace Annenberg. I know. And that's, have you been in that venue yet? I've never <gasps> been there. I was there for Patricia Kelly. She does the retros- the Gene Kelly legacy. Oh, she's a great friend of ours. I yes. just love, I had the pleasure of meeting her for the first time on the TCM Film Festival red carpet a few years ago. How fabulous. And what she does to not only preserve Gene's legacy, but to let people know he wasn't just a dancer he wasn't just an actor or a singer he gave this in the film industry so much in terms of innovation technically how to shoot a film uh lensing you know musical numbers he and she really likes to embrace that and let people know you know what he's done yes because people forget i mean Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly, not necessarily in that order, and they were they were very complementary to each other because mm-hmm. uh, their approach, the focus was, you know, um, Fred Astaire was balletic, more balletic, and even though Gene Kelly was ballet, his was, uh, you know, more what we call gymnastics, and, mm-hmm. and um, in fact, we got to know. Gene later in his life and uh, when he was married to Pat and I asked him once um, about that because that takes a toll on the body and because he did things that the body's not supposed to do and he said Carol one day I just as when he was older he said I started to get up out of bed put my feet on the floor and it just 
it wouldn't, you know, I almost went to the floor. In other words, it, it took its toll mm -hmm. on yeah. him physically. But he was a charming man, just, oh, wonderful. And he didn't mind, you know, you could ask him all sorts of questions, and he thought it was fabulous. He was a, he was a terrific, and she is wonderful, and isn't her show terrific? That show that is just absolutely fabulous. Oh, and yeah. That it was is. my first time at the Wallace was seeing that, and I then went and saw it a second time. Oh, how wonderful. Well, now I hear it's a wonderful theater. It is absolutely beautiful, and there's not a bad seat in the house, so anybody coming on Sunday to see Stage L.A., Sondheim number 5, now it's on Saturday, darling. Is it Saturday? Yeah, it's the eighteenth. Saturday, it's Saturday matinee and Saturday evening. So people have two shots at it: two o'clock Saturday afternoon and eight o'clock uh, Saturday night. And you know, I'm, I'm looking at the lineup. That, of course, as we know, every year with David Galligan directing, the lineup keeps changing. You know? it's Oh, always, always. <laughs> and I see now Rita Moreno. Yes. Now, she's done it several times with her, with us, and we're thrilled to have her. It's um, Mary Jo Cat. Well, it's some of the old guard and all, and the new guard, which which I don't have the program in front of me. Well, I know that Mary Jo Catlett is back, and I love, and you know I love Mary Jo. Yes. And Davis Gaines, Jason Gray. That's it. You know, uh, Mary Jo Mundy this year. Yes. Which and, should be lovely. Yeah. We have, we just have, and we have a lot of new, I think it's about half and half. Because, new blood, old blood. And um, and our audiences are, are that way. New blood, old blood. So, honey, we try to please everybody. Well, and I think you do a very fine job of doing that, Carol. Well, I tell you, it's exciting to do and, Debbie, when we started out, I mean, and nobody even knew what AIDS. You know, we just, they called it the plague. They called it the gay disease. And we've been with it a long time. Mm -hmm. And uh, too long. <laughs> too long. But, um, but, but you we know, have it to do with, we lost, when we started, that was 32 years, we lost a generation of uh, people in the arts. Mm -hmm. You know, it decimated the arts, the, uh, in all facets, in music and choreography and acting, and it. Um, I remember. I remember it well. I don't think uh, any of us who lived through that will ever get over that because when you got AIDS, it was. Um, it, you were not going to get well. You know, now, we it, made great strides. Uh, great strides. You know, but unfortunately. There's now been a rise again in in cases of HIV being reported. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And, you know, that's why, you know, Stage L.A. is still very a very vital element. I know. You know, I know. in the it's, community. It's still unbelievably strong. And I, what happens in life, everybody has a favorite charity. And so it's it's difficult for people to divide it up, but we appreciate when they when they think of us because it is it's with us every day. It's just that in 32 years, uh, you know, everybody has something wrong that they want to uh, to help. Mm -hmm. And so we'll keep doing it. But in that way, it's I don't know. It's very. It's hard. It's hard. And this year we're going to, uh, there will be a memoriam and the people, we've lost so many people now that are were in our show, too. Mm -hmm. So there's no, there's no favoritism to AIDS, you know, and women, children, and uh, we are diversified. We, uh, we give our money, we... Uh, do it for South um, Californians. Right, you know. for... for um, hands-on. Uh, people do the millions of dollars for research, and that's brilliant, of course. But uh, we, you know, we feed people, we pay their rent, we take care of their animals, uh, we take them to doctors. Ours is a hands-on. Mm -hmm. 
and I wish I knew David would know. We, over the years, have raised seven million, and we would, and we started out charging ten bucks, and we wow. cleaned the toilets, and we brought the coffee, and I mean, it was, it was like an old Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney show. We go, gee, kids, this is a swallow barn. Why don't we fix it up and do the show in here? <laughs> you know, it was that, it was that uh, basic. And now people help us with hair and makeup, and which was started by my hairdresser from Forty um, Second Street. Mm-hmm. He came to see the show. I think it was the second year, and he said, "Oh, you girls need help. <laughs> you, you're walking beauty violations." <laughs> and with with that, he brought in his people for hair, makeup, people. Now De Toile and several other restaurants. Uh, bring us uh, food in between shows. So we've grown, but we still, honey, we still pay for our own parking. David Galligan, not one cent goes to us. It goes to the to the cause. Uh, it's it's just such a worthy cause. Now, I haven't, I didn't ask Scott, but is, do you know, is there going to be a silent auction again this year? Yes, there is. Oh, God. Good. You guys always get me good at that one. Yeah, and we <laughs> we we do good money wise that way. And uh, now I don't know where it's set up in that theater, but uh, but we'll find out. We'll find out. And um, I love the silent auction, and I think it's you know we have composers that do their manuscripts and all of that. I think it's exciting. There are always good things in it. Oh, always. they're they're fabulous. Uh, I know. I went uh, I went above and beyond. Uh, last year, and I'm hoping that you have that there is one this year. Good I got girl, th- we love you, Debbie Ann. <laughs> we love you. <laughs> Keep that money rolling in, sweetheart. Yeah. For you, anything you know that. For well, you- I tell you, I love doing it. As I said, on one side, I think, oh my God, we're still having to do it. But on the other side, you know, I feel. Well, I've been working with it. My husband and I, since 1983, Mm -hmm. we started in 84. And um, it's been a long haul, but but I feel we're doing something. I know we're we're accomplishing something. And that's that's a great feeling. Now, while you're working so hard and performing, what will your dear husband, Tom Troop, be doing? With with if he's smart, he'll be applauding. That's what he'll be doing. <laughs> Should he applaud for everyone or just you? No, just me. Um, he'll be throwing money also on the side. My, but uh, he'll be there for both performances. Oh yes, he's more nervous than I am. I don't know whether nervous, but it's exciting. I don't. I've been in it so long. Well, it's kind of a nervousness, but I choose to use the word exciting. Mm-hmm. It's anticipation, because like all performances, you never know how you're going to do and how the audience. I always tell an audience, when it goes well, I give them half the credit. If it does not go well, I'm very generous. I give them half of the blame. <laughs> So, I'm very big at that. See, I see. I can't do that. You know, I mean, the radio show is live, and if I screw it up, it's all me. Well, well, that's the way I look at it, Debbie Lynn. It's all you, honey. If this isn't going well, it's all you. I said she didn't ask the right questions. That's not the problem. No, I love talking to you, and every year we'll do it honey until we can't do it anymore i'll tell you and of course this year we didn't get to see each other at any premieres or anything i know it why was that obviously some people got their guest list screwed up and (laughs) you and i just didn't get invited or it blew off the porch as we want to say i felt that way about the queen's birthday Uh, why were you not invited well i think i was darling i think there was a terrible i cannot believe I'm not the Queen of England. Well, I think there was a mix-up at the hospital when I was born. <laughs> and Carol Cook is now on the throne. And I am Betty Windsor sitting in Los Angeles, California, doing benefits. Now, something is wrong. Uh, now, how are you going to hold up for two performances? Because in the past, the past few years, 
stage LA has just done the one the one performance. That's right. I tell you, we had to do it because we're used to performing in like thousand twelve hundred seat, uh, and because we usually sell out. Right. And um, if I'm not mistaken, you've been there. Uh, I think the Wallace Annenberg only I think seats five or six hundred. It's it's less seating than the than the Saban. That's it. Yeah. So so I'll be very crass. So to get the money we're used to taking in, we're doing uh, two performances. But you know, Debbie, I think it may work out. I mean, I know it will because many people now. As they get a little older, too, they don't like to go out at night or drive or whatever it is. And so matinees, I found when I'm doing a show, matinees sometimes are the best shows. You've got a better crowd. Well, they, I, and, and used to be, I think when on Broadway a lot, we'd always go home matinees. It's going to be a lot of little funny ladies in, in purple hats. And uh, let me tell you. Matinees are absolutely thrilling. I mm-hmm. found, and that's true of Broadway too. I think. Um, well, I just have noticed through the years that matinees are better and better and better. Well, I'm going to be at the matinee, and oh, great! I may even come to the eight o'clock show. Well, listen, would you say hi? Of course, I will. Do you think I'm going to show up and not come hunt you down? <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm the lady with the funny red hair. You don't know me. Yeah, and I've got the <laughs> funny red hair, too, so. <laughs> so we're even. I always end up seeing Tom, though, before I get to see you because you're backstage performing. Oh, that's right. So be sure and say hi to him. I promise. I okay, promise. darling. Oh, you, my love. Thank you so, so much, Carol. David, and thanks for all your help. And I want to thank all of our fans out there because... You're what it's about. We can't do it without you, okay? Well, I will see you on Saturday. And everybody, you can still get tickets at StageLA.com. You bet. You bet. And we'll we'll see you until we meet again. Yes, ma'am. And give my love to Tom. And I'll see you both on Saturday. And my love to you and to Mr. Brian, okay? Okay. Bye, Carol. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was the incomparable, one-of-a-kind Carol Cook. And yes, there are still tickets available for the Stage LA event this Saturday at the Wallace. Two performances, matinee at 2, evening performance at 8. A very worthy cause. The lineup is amazing. You've got Carol performing. As she said, I'm still here. Rita Moreno is performing. Susan Anton, Loretta Devine, Allison Janney, um... Mary Jo Catlett, who is, you know, another stalwart along with Carol, Um, Davis Gaines, Jason Gray, just a who's who of stage and screen. So if you're in the Los Angeles area, it's always a fantastic show, Uh, and I can't recommend it highly enough. So let's, let's, let's jockey back to Finding Dory. How's that sound, Brian? We'll jockey back to Finding Dory. So we heard Lindsay Collins, producer Lindsay Collins, talk a little bit about the story of Finding Dory. But part and parcel, one of the standout things of Finding Dory is the technological advancements. Pixar has been using a proprietary software known as RenderMan for 20 years now. That has, And, of course, there have been upgrades, there have been additions, there have been addenda. Katana is one of them um, that have allowed the animation to progress to the levels of excellence it has. What you will see unfold with Finding Dory surpasses anything. This is a brand new architecture of the render man now called RIS. Uh, and it deals and it plays with refraction. It allows for, for lensing refraction, reflection of water, curved surfaces with water and glass. Absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal technology. And I had a chance to talk to Lindsay about RenderMan and this new, this new RIS architecture. We you we know. did it. I mean, I'm sure as you know, like this, we got rid of. I mean, the RenderMan version that we've been using for the past 20 years is gone. Is gone. 
And they were, we had long discussions because the timing of it seemed to make sense for our film, like when they were ready to launch it. Mm-hmm. But we were pr- pretty far along. And so it required us to kind of go, be willing to kind of go back and redo a lot of things mm-hmm. that we had already kind of established. And so we had long talks about it because it was not known and we were going to be the show that was definitely testing it the way mm-hmm. no other show had tested it. And so we sat with around a big table with Ed Catmull and the Renderman folks up in... in um, Seattle and the Pixar folks, and we all kind of looked around the table and said, okay, are we all holding hands? Because it was a big change. When yeah. you just even just work habits, workflows, like how you're used to using the render, the way the renderer even mm-hmm. just fundamentally works. Is and different. I know that over the years with, with certain films like The Dinosaur and some yeah. others, there would be other additions. We did Katana, on, you know, in like the realistic there kind of... There were additions to the program sure. itself, but this is a total revamp. Yeah. Architecture, yeah, yeah, the architecture is totally different. So... We, it not only was it like a timing wise, it worked out and we were the ones that made sense to do it with, but frankly, th- what the story is about and what that renderer can do. I mean, water and reflections and refractions, mm-hmm. the stuff that we struggle with the, that makes up every single shot in this film yeah. was the very thing that this, this renderer does kind of not out of the box, but pretty close. I mean, mm-hmm. they get you pretty far along. And so it took a lot of work and a lot of handholding and a lot of like, it's going to be fine. We're going to make it. And but we started really quickly seeing things. I mean, like Andrew would be like, that's just what, I haven't even given you notes yet. And that's what you get kind of out of the box. So mm-hmm. it was, it was a huge leap forward. And the studio kind of had to all agree that we were going to do it kind of in the middle, make that change sort mm-hmm. of in the middle of production. But, you know, I think the results speak for themselves. It looks beautiful. And beautiful it does indeed. And before we, we're going to, Come back to Lindsay a little bit later because Brian is now answering the phone with, I am sure it is Jody McVeigh Schultz. As soon as I see a heads up here. Yes, we have a heads up. Welcome, my friend Jody McVeigh Schultz. How are you? How are you? I'm doing good. So how exciting Echo Lake got a distribution. Yep. From Gravitas Ventures. Gravitas is I can't I can't say enough about Gravitas. They have picked up more little indie gems, I think, than anybody out there. It's just amazing, and I'm yeah. so I'm so they're, glad Echo Lake. Fantastic. I'm so glad Echo Lake is one of them. Yes, uh, yeah, we're we're releasing tomorrow, uh, and it'll be pretty much on every VOD platform. Uh, every transactional VOD platform, which means if you can pay money on the spot, you can get it there. Come to Netflix uh, later on down the line. So now for everybody that, you know, is hearing Echo Lake, hmm, why should we spend our money to see this? What is Echo Lake? <laughs> ab- what, what is Echo Lake about? I know what it's about, so, but in your words. Right. Um, Echo Lake is the story of Will. Uh, he's a guy who's kind of losing control of his life. He's having a little bit of a quarter-life crisis, you might say. Um, and he's estranged from his family, and especially his father. And his father dies and leaves him this cabin in the middle of the woods. And to him, it feels like this, you know, the dad's final, you know, F you to him. Um, he doesn't see it as like this great gift um, because there's so much baggage tied up in this place. But he gets uh, kicked out of his girlfriend's place because his life's kind of a mess, and he ends up having to go up there. Um, and the movie's really about um, the ways in which we get so wrapped up in the sort of stories we've told ourselves about our lives. So he's, you know, so in his own head about how his childhood has made him the way he is. Um, and this trip up to this cabin kind of opens up the Pandora's box of discovering, you know, what's really the truth about that, how there are other perspectives on his father. Um, he meets uh, a, a friend of his father, and he inherits his dad's dog as well. Um, and Otis and so it's is kind a, of about, Otis you know, is a great his, dog. His, his discovery. It is a great dog. Otis is dog a great acting, dog. If I may say so, is pretty uh, fantastic in the movie. So, I mean, I you know. Films that have, you know, Ned Airbar was on last week talking about his his short film that just got a DHD shorts, and Jack, yeah. his the, the German Shepherd Jack, 
you know, you guys are smart. You pick these really adorable dogs. <laughs> yeah. And it's true. The minute you see a dog and their face and, you know, those like puppy eyes, you know, there's this empathy that comes with it. And, and my character, the main character, this guy, Will, he's, you know, I'm interested in unlikable characters and mm-hmm. people that it's hard to empathize with. And so you see him see this dog and he doesn't want the dog at all. But of course, he has no choice but to sort of learn to love it because it's just such an adorable dog. And, and so, that, that, yeah, it's definitely a lot of the story is man and his dog. Uh, and, and then what happens? I won't spoil it, obviously, but, uh, but you know, there's, it gets a little more complicated than that. So. Well, and, you know, the importance of Will and Otis, the bonding that they have, is that's really the entree into Will's soul-searching and his self-discovery. Right. And, you know, it really it puts it in perspective when you watch this relationship unfold. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there, there's... Uh, I made a point that... Um, the, 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 the movie's told a little bit chronologically. There are flashbacks, but I made a point that I never showed his father mm-hmm. because I really wanted the kind of point of the movie to be that, um, you know, we, we have all these ideas and memories of what a person is um, that are subjective, you know? Um, and in a lot of ways, the dog and then this neighbor who's a friend of his father, they act as kind of proxies for his father, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so he ends up kind of going through this emotional, like, journey with these proxies um, and never really getting to, you know, figure out how to grieve. It's, it, this story is really about, like, the fact that nobody really knows how to, how to go through grief, you know? Mm-hmm. There's no right way, and we're kind of all clueless when, it, when we first experience it on a large scale. Well, and, and something I like to describe about Echo Lake is that we see the humanity of imperfection. Yes. I mean, it, yeah. it very much, you know, a lot of people, when they're flawed, uh, ignore responsibility, you know, not that likable. But then as you start to chip away at that veneer and here it's through the bonding of Will and Otis, um, we start to see humanity comes from those imperfections. Right. And it's so, and yeah. you tell it so beautifully. I, uh, I'm definitely interested in, in, you know, realistically flawed characters. I mean, Will is definitely a guy who, you know, he has issues with anger, but he also just takes the easy way out. Um, you know, the reason he has issues with his girlfriend that lead to him getting kicked out and having to go up to the cabin is because he's, you know, just unable to actually follow through on the things you have to do, just the most basic things you have to do to be in a healthy relationship. Um, and so, yeah, I was also interested in, you know, somebody reviewed this movie early on and said it's uh, it's about small moments, not gigantic belts of emotion. Mm-hmm. And I think that was, it was really uh, kind of them, but also, you know, kind of pointed to our movie because, it is about these small things and his changes, you know, it's about this guy's journey, but you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's naturalistic and realistic. And so it's the ways he changes are subtle and in, in small moments. So and that's just the kind of thing I was interested in. And so much of what you bring with the characters follows through in your cinematography. I mean, Andy Razuski does this is one of the most beautiful. It is cinematically beautiful watching this film. You know, yeah. It, and he's amazing. Um, he actually just was hanging out with him last night. Um, and he, you know, th- the combination of, you know, working on, we shot it on a 5d, mm-hmm. um, and it does not look like it's shot on a 5d and that's all him. You know, we, we, you know, spend our money in lenses, which is good. But he also had this, you know, vision of this way in which once he gets out into the woods that the lenses would open up and you get this really, you know, wide, you know, all these wide shots and this this feeling that he is small in this, you know, giant natural world that's 
been evolving for, you know, millennia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really, it's, it's subtly done, but it's, it's, it's there. Um, and then the other side of it is Andy just is like such a mountain man <laughs> that he was able, you know, we, we were really out there in the elements. Um, and you know, for the exterior stuff, we did hike quite a way to get the, the, the sort of epic shots that were needed because, you know, you got to find in a low budget movie like this, you got to find production value where you can. Um, so free production value with really epic vistas is, um, super valuable. And he was the kind of, you know, guy who could rip his shirt off and carry a camera <laughs> several miles on his back and, you know. Well, and something else, and you know, but you guys also, because you had to hike to so many of these locations as you were discovering them, you were also, you were camping out together and really, you know, in direct contrast to Will being so estranged from everyone, you and your crew really bonded as a family. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we kind of had to, (laughs) and it's, it's interesting. I, uh, we scheduled, and this was probably a mistake, but we scheduled, the biggest amount of hiking on the first two days. Are you insane? So it was definitely like trial by fire. And by the end of that, it was like, well, we can do anything now. You know, the, the next 19 days of the shoot are going to be <laughs> a piece of cake compared to that. So, you know, maybe I would have scheduled those later on in the shoot if I had to do it again. But um, that is true. You know, you, you, it was an adventure. Um, that was part of it. So, well, you know, and hand in hand with Andy's cinematography, are, is your score Joe Minadeo's score, and then your mm-hmm. sound mm-hmm. design? Talk to me about yeah. your considerations there. So many people overlook sound design, especially on what I like to call, as you know, low budget, no budget films. Um, right. But your sound design—we hear the sounds of nature. We hear those little moments. That yeah. ma- that help make up the stepping stones for Will. Yeah. So um, so Joe, uh, I met through a friend, amazing composer. Um, his the thing that I loved about what he did is he kind of has um, it's like a subtle looping score that that often you'd hear kind of like a very electronic version of that Mm -hmm. but i knew that given the film that we made it couldn't be that it had to be you know acoustic kind of natural dirty sounding not everything should be perfectly on beat and so he was able to do that you know he's he can play a ton of instruments he's interested in you know kind of different instrumentation we use a lot of like bells little banjo bits and um just a really interesting score and and for me it was always my my notes were always to him like just pull back pull back <laughs> you know because people want to do big you know emotional uh cues and for this it was always like i want the music not to over inform the emotion um and then for sound design <clears throat> um so i am an editor by trade i edited this movie um and i've worked a lot in um in reality and documentary, and a lot of times you're doing essentially all the the sound design yourself in the edit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm very aware of that, and I did a lot of sound design um, before I handed it off to um, our sound designer who also mixed the film. Um, and so I was really, I'm very specific about sound, about timing, about you know, how natural I want it to sound. I try to use as much production sound as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, it was just about, you know, every time that we put in Foley, making sure it's really subtle, really realistic. Um, the the entire hike up to Cindercon, we had to replace the sound because we, it was like very limited crew and we didn't have production sound up there. And the Foley artist was just, very good <laughs> and we kept everything very muted and realistic so yeah that was the goal now, you know, the, the sound design it bodes this great serenity yeah thank you, you you really feel a serenity which is in direct contrast to what will is actually going through so it's just a beautiful juxtaposition that you have in the design right 
Now, because right. because you do come out of editing, you know, all those fun mm-hmm. things like Duck Dynasty and Drunk History. Um, yeah. Does that help you? Because this was your first feature, writing, directing, yeah. editing. Did that help you when you were working with Andy, either shot listing or storyboarding something out in terms of in your mind's eye, you could save steps? Yes. Um, I mean, to a certain extent, what I wanted is to get in the edit room and have options. Mm -hmm. So I would say I probably overshot, if anything, uh, to to get a lot of coverage. Um, So it didn't necessarily save time in that regard uh, on set. But I did. I was directing for the edit. So Mm -hmm. directors talk about that. If you've had experience in post, you kind of understand, you know, how you're going to get into a scene. And so um, it was very important to me to um, to get inserts. We did a lot of planning to get little details that helped us get into scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially in the cabin where a lot of this takes place, it's got such character. And we, you know, we found this location that, didn't need a ton of set dressing. It was a friend's cabin and wow. it was, you know, cobweb filled and had all these little details. And so it was, the idea was capture that and make sure we, you know, take the time to get those little details and that'll help bring us into scenes. And then you, you know, if you're doing that sort of thing, you can spend less time on your masters, your wide shots, um, and really, you know, do the front of the scene a couple of times and maybe once all the way through and then get into your coverage. Cause that's really where you're going to, you know, tell the story in the scene. Because your coverage, your wide shots, your, the vistas that you capture yeah. with your exteriors, it, it just fuels the intimacy of this story because you right. have all the little details. You have everything in the cabin, which is very intimate. And most people would think that, okay, you get outside and you have these, the, these glorious views but it's yeah. going to open it up, but it really creates even more. It just fuels the intimacy even further. Right. Well, and he's always alone in those spaces or, or with the dog. Um, so it's, you know, it's a lot of, yeah, I mean, it is intimate. Even if you're in a big wide and you're seeing this, like, you know, for miles, these lava beds and these lakes, uh, you still get a sense of like, he's entirely alone in this, <laughs> in this world like there's Mm -hmm. there's no one coming to help him you know sort of thing so yeah i think i think i I like that juxtaposition of really small and and really wide Mm -hmm. no it it just works beautifully for this story now what was what was the impetus what prompted this story as your first feature film so um i was really interested in the place so i grew up um spending summers in this place called Lassen National Park, which Mm -hmm. is um, where my father's family did actually have a cabin. And we didn't shoot at that cabin, but a lot of the sort of details about the cabin are homages to my experiences there. You know, when he first shows up, there's this uh, cabin manual that has all these little notes about how you got to do every little thing and everything's rigged a certain way, like kind of 50s style plumbing and all this other stuff. And uh, that's very much true to my experiences. And I think that's also something that people can relate to if they have this sort of, you know, cabin in their family or something they share with with people like that. Um, You and I had talked about that before, equating it to the Jersey Shore and the Poconos. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's it's the same. Um, And... So, yeah, it was this place I'd taken that um, hike to um, the Cindercon, and my father had taken it before me with, you know, his uh, brother-in-law. And so it was kind of this, like, there was lore around that, you know, there was mythology built up around this place. So I wanted a way, a story in which to get the character out there, um, essentially alone. Um, he would meet a few other characters, but it was mostly about this one guy and this dog. Um, and so in order to do that, I wanted the place to kind of be a character and have an emotional impact on him. And because he has this, all this baggage with his father tied up in this place, 
the place has an impact. And so it's really about him and this place. Um, and, you know, my father is a wonderful father. <laughs> He's not at all, you know, the, the father in the story is, uh, uh, it's, it's kind of suggested that he's, you know, an alcoholic, he's abusive. Mm-hmm. Um, and my father is none of those things. He's a, he's a wonderful father. Um, but I just knew I needed an impetus for him to go out there and have it be tied up in baggage. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I went for that. And, and a lot of it, you know, when you're writing a story like this, you're starting from constraints, you know? We didn't have the money to do, to have a huge day with a ton of extras. We didn't have the money to get a, a ton of, you know, complicated location. So if you can set it outside and, you know, limit your, the amount you have to light and all that stuff, uh, it can, it can, it can be helpful for that. And then, you know, within those constraints, you start to, you know, your creative juices start to go. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how we did it. So what was the biggest learning curve for you making this jump from just editing into being a feature director? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the the thing that was most surprising to me was uh, the process of writing, um, going from writing to editing. Mm-hmm. And what happens is you get the footage and you start to work and you realize, oh, <laughs> like, I overwrote this. <laughs> and I wanted it to be naturalistic. And so what happens is you end up pulling back um, on your own dialogue. And I think that was a big learning curve. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm in a different mode when I'm writing and editing and the writing, you want everything to be connected and to be clever and all, all the like loose storylines to tie together. And often that's not like real life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I did want it to, you know, be naturalistic. And so a lot of times I was pulling back on dialogue, which you do anyway in the edit. But it was interesting to have written that those words and to be like, well, this doesn't work and to, to pull it back. And so we did a lot of um, of cutting down. I mean, we started from a two hour and 10 minute assembly mm-hmm. and we ended up with an 86 minute movie. Um, and so, you know, we killed a lot of our babies, as they say. Um, but I think what ended up happening is you get rid of kind of the, some of the mediocre stuff or the stuff that's a little too clever or what have you. And, uh, you end up with really a, the length that the movie should be with this kind of small, subtle movie. It shouldn't be longer than that. Um, and luckily I had people with me, uh, Sam, the star also was, uh, pretty pivotal in the post process, giving me notes and Andy who, was the DP, but also the co-producer. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just, you know, they were like, you know, there's a shorter movie in here that we need to find and, and uh, helps me get there. So so now what's, yeah. what's next for you? Are you working on another project now? Or are you just c- celebrating the fact that you've got a distribution deal and the film is coming out tomorrow? Yeah. So, I mean, there's still obviously, you know, with, with a movie as small as this, I'm doing a lot of the publicity stuff myself. Um, so there's, you know, a lot of that stuff to be done, but I am, uh, I'm editing right now. I have a, a show that I just finished editing, um, called last chance you that'll mm-hmm. be out on Netflix, uh, July 29th. Okay. It's a documentary series about a, a junior college football team in Louis in Mississippi. Um, so that'll be cool. Um, and then, yeah, I'm, I'm editing right now on an animated comedy uh that nick kroll is show running and, and starring in um that will be out in a while it's uh it'll be out on netflix but um but yeah it's exciting so a lot of editing gigs and then trying to find time in the midst of that to write the next script so i have a couple outlined and i'm working on one of them um so yeah. well, well you know i have to see it when you get it done yes absolutely yeah absolutely yeah, i'm going more the comedy route um, that's sort of where I've been, you know, working into with drunk history and this new animated series is kind of the contacts I've been making. And, and I do like comedy, so it'll be a weird comedy, weird and subtle. <laughs> well, there's so. nothing wrong with weird. <laughs> yes, exactly. Weird is good. Weird is definitely good. Jody, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm just, thank I am, you, I am I appreciate I'm so it. thrilled about the film. So thrilled. And everybody can see Echo Lake tomorrow.
on VOD, all platforms. Yes. Go see it. Uh, and I'll talk to you again soon, Jody. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Debbie. Bye-bye. And that's all the time we have today. We'll hear more next week uh, from Lindsay Collins and from Ellen DeGeneres and Ed O'Neill on Finding Dory. So until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Thank <laughs> you.